I had seen her before, passing through the square, and had naturally avoided her, as did all others, it seemed, rushing past through the rain. She was at once unremarkable and abhorrent, like an invisible, putrid odor. She slumped in the massive, obscuring shadow of the cathedral's great white bell tower like a lump of unused coal, cowled and filthy. As far as I could tell, or wished to, she was a beggar, small enough to be a child, but though some would toss coins in her direction, most would hasten their step and hardly pause, feeling their hearts gripped suddenly with a fear of something cold and nameless. Often the priest himself, wishing his parishioners good night on the marble steps of the great cathedral, would lean into the shadows and prompt the creature to move on. He called her Cass. I doubt that she had given it him to use, for it seemed she never spoke. I have never been a religious man, but on this day I stood in desperation before the cathedral. People found truth here. People asked questions and seemed to be answered in ways I could not understand. From the light, the very air, the lifeless eyes of statues carved by human hands came an injection into their placid minds. I fought where they merely absorbed. I placed my foot on the first step, slippery with rain, and heard a voice, close as if it had been speaking inside my own head. The very sound of it frightened me. I startled like a panicked animal, needing suddenly to run, but frozen by some distant instinct. It was less a voice than a hissing, wheezing gasp, growling and breathing out twisted syllables that crawled over and under each other until I recognized a single phrase, repeated again and again. He is dying. Listen. Listen, you must listen. My body cringed as if of its own will, pulling me down towards the marble as the words filled my ears and head, hopeless and insistent. I lifted my eyes to the great doors of the cathedral in wonder and terror. What voice is this? What god speaks in serpent's tongues? I gave a small cry, clutching my hands and arms to my chest and curling towards my knees as one weak and threatened and the voice subsided to a subtle whisper. Listen. You must listen. I turned my head. The beggar woman sat in the wet, shadowed pools of black rainwater, where the steps turned to meet the cathedral wall and the uneven stone of the square. Cowled and shrouded to a mass of dark and wet, her presence was as unobtrusive as an icy wind. She held a book, torn and ragged. I did not want to pause. Indeed, the chill she brought to my heart gave me a desperate need to scramble away. The very air near her made my bones feel brittle. But the voice that crept through the corners of my mind stopped and a curious hesitation held my feet firm. He is dying. 
I started. The voice was rasping, but clear. The cowled figure moved, just slightly. A twitch of the arm, a lift of the chin, perhaps, and the dank covering fell back to reveal one eye, downturned toward the sodden text in her hands. Then it fell on me. He is dying, she said. My body found its feet again, and I ran. The road home was crowded with the blurry specters of fear. They crept through the shadows and skittered with the rats down the damp shelves of the canals, below the street and above the black water. Rain clouds rushed day into night, and when I finally placed my hand upon my own latch, the sinking city had closed its eyes to me and wrapped us all in darkness. That night, for the first time in months, I did not sit down to my desk after Angelo had gone to bed. The world had shown itself in a spectrum of ashen grey to be as frightening and intricate as any tale birthed in ink. Thinking of the woman's words brought the cold and wet in towards me even in the warmth of my own kitchen. The mutterings of insanity. So came the beginning of something small. Something as small as a boy's oily fingers pressed for half a breath to a window. As small as the cloudy mark left behind and as small as the rivulet that changes direction rather than cross it. Even then, a part of me felt it begin, though that part remained buried as deep within me as the writer I thought I was. I said good night to the pale, beautiful form of my son, as ethereal in sleep as awake, kissed my wife, and began a sleepless journey through night to morning. The next day I rose early, before the sun, and the chill of the night before still lay upon me. But my wife lit a fire, and wrapped me in her slender arms, and the warmth of my soul returned. I watched her move about the kitchen, graceful in the pre-dawn promises of light, and felt the ugliness of yesterday fade to the echo of a bad dream. Work was the same comforting routine. I was somewhat haggard from my sleepless night, but still happy to exchange a few words with Mrs. Seven O'Clock Rye when she smiled beneath her dark glasses. As the day wore on, however, fatigue stole over me and with it came a familiar chill and the echoing voice of the night before. I must have grown pale in my discomfort, for after the customary rush at midday I was told, with a gentle hand on the shoulder, to go home and get well. I did neither. Instead, I spent what coin rattled in my coat pocket to calm my frigid body in a way I had not allowed myself to experience since my marriage. Hunched on a stool in a building designed to feel nocturnal even at the height of the afternoon, I let the burning liquor color my blood and take the chill off my vague, persistent fear. Let those who will lend guilt or self-pity to my recollections of that afternoon, but I do not. May this sober hand stamp no judgments on the beauty of my intoxication. 
what warmth spread from my first glass of fire was intensified by my second and third. I felt luxurious, rich and soft as thick red velvet, wrapped in a cloak of my own skin. Through the darkness above me the sun shone on my face and back with glorious warmth, and the stern, bulky form of the bartender was that of a trusted friend a fellow patriot in the struggles of everyday existence. The shadows did not disappear from the corners of my eyes, nor did the cowled woman, huddled in the recesses of my mind, fade to insignificance. However, the thick insulation of alcohol had smoothed and softened the sharp, raw edges of fear. I felt warm and safe, and the security of the barstool began to coax back my curiosity momentarily free of my oppressive terror. It surged hungrily to the surface. I emptied my pockets on the bar, polished smooth from the years of fear, anger, and anonymity filling its seats. The reflection was vague and distorted, my hand a flash of light in a pool of shadow. With steps made uncertain by my indulgences, I braved the daylight and turned my body towards the bell tower, its pristine white face peering down above the dark, grimy stone buildings that squatted before me. The cold, damp air sobered me enough to keep my feet out of the puddles, but not enough to turn my purposeful stride. As in the custom of those driven by the foggy, violent determination of liquor, I had not yet considered a course of action once I arrived at the square, nor could I articulate what it was that I wanted from this venture. Some part of me had decided that I had to see her again, and that was as much ground as my stifled mind had covered.' 